we're going to be looking at a passage of Scripture in the book of Hebrews we're actually going to be studying this morning. We've been in Galatians studying chapter by chapter, verse by verse. But this morning, we're going to actually springboard off of Galatians 3.14. If you want to turn there real quickly with me, you can. Galatians chapter 3. Pastor Chad will be picking back, picking back up next week. And then we're going to be in Hebrews chapter 6, verse 13 through 20. So if you want to hold that place. Galatians 3, verse 14 reads, So that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. Then Hebrews chapter 6, starting at verse 13, we read, For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes, an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. So, that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain, where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Let's pray. Oh God, we we are weak sinners and in desperate need of your saving light. So this morning, we pray to you that you might open the words of this living book unto our darkened hearts and minds that you would deliver us from captivity, that you would bring us into the living truth of your gospel. May your Holy Spirit work afresh in our lives, making us a new creation in Christ. Open the blind eyes, O God, and deaf ears, and raise the spiritually dead. Grant unto us eternal life in your Son, Christ Jesus, in whose name we pray, amen. Amen. Well, we've been studying in Galatians and taking a bit of a detour now but in Hebrews. And the letter of Hebrews is the letter in which the New Testament, it's most like a sermon. It's written by a pastor to his church. It's there to encourage and challenge his sheep. He, he does this concisely in about 13 chapters. But in those 13 chapters, his desire is to bring challenge and encouragement to a mixed group of people. 
Some needed harsh warnings. There were false believers in the church. There were weak Christians. And others needed tender encouragement to press on and endure in their faith. The gospel ministry of this letter introduces a radical surgery here in chapter 6 in which the pastor is going to then turn towards an even more radical healing. Sometimes the word tears down and it breaks apart our pride and our sin. And sometimes it brings a healing balm to our soul with great comfort and great care. The challenge of this pastor and any faithful preacher of God's word is to do well with both conviction and comfort. And the challenge of the hearer, you, us, is to do well with conviction and comfort. As Jeremiah was told by the Lord there in chapter 1, verse 9, the Lord said to Jeremiah, Behold, I have put my words in your mouth. See, I have set you this day over nations and kingdoms to pluck up and to break down to destroy and to overthrow, to build and to plant. And this is exactly how the Word works in our lives. It's continuously convicting and regularly giving us comfort. And so this is one of these chapters in Hebrews where the caring pastor really does both. In the beginning, he starts off with conviction. And then he moves towards comfort. And he does this with precision, like a surgeon. He does it incredibly well. He tears down in the beginning and he plucks up. He looks to destroy and to overthrow the false professing believers with God's word. And then he turns in verse 9 and he begins to plant and to build. And like a good farmer, he's tending the vines of his vineyard. He is a good pastor. He knows when to apply that conviction and then to turn and when to give comfort. And so, even as we saw in our reading of Galatians, back in chapter 3, verses 10 through 14 last week, we read where Paul was doing really much of the same with law and gospel. Under law, we find ourselves convicted and cursed. The law wounds us And it creates a deep need in our hearts for the gospel's remedy. The Bible begins with law and gospel in Genesis 1 through 3. Adam in Genesis 1 and 2 was placed under the probationary command by God of blessing and cursing. Should he eat of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, he would be cursed. Should he eat of the tree of life, he would be blessed. Men would forever know through Adam's decision whether it would be the law that would be upon their lives or whether it would be God's grace, continuing life-giving strength. But Adam sinned, and with him all of mankind was now God's enemy. They were outside of his kingdom, They were no longer in God's land. They were no longer his people. And now the shadow of death would be cast upon all of creation, including men's hearts. 
Men would forever now be born under the law. They would be cursed in sin and outside of God's rule and blessing. While the law had damned all of us born in Adam, God also gave us in Genesis 3.15 a blessing promise. That was a promise of a seed, a saving son who would come from Eve. This seed would crush the serpent's head, and yet he would be struck upon his heel. And later, God would give his law and blessing to Moses and Israel. They, like a new Adam, would be commanded to obey God's law in order to remain his people in his place, the land of Canaan, and be under his sovereign rule and blessing. But Israel, like Adam, failed to keep God's law. They sinned, and therefore they were, they were cursed. They were driven out into exile. They were again no longer God's people. They were again outside of God's rule and out from under his blessing. And so, the Old Testament shows us that exile is really a condition of which man lives under the curse. As sinful men were born with hearts that live in exile. We, we are in exile in our relationship to God. We cannot ourselves satisfy the righteous requirements of the law. And so God, who is perfectly holy, and yet we are wicked and deceitful. And so now here in Hebrews 1 through 8, the pastor of this letter, he has just struck down with fear the hearts of false professing believers. He begins like Moses with a rod striking with the law. And then he comes to verse 9. And we will see today that he picks up a gospel blessing. A blessing made in Abraham's seed, a faith promise. And he uses the blessing and cursing covenantal language as he's wrapping up towards the end there of the curse in verses 7 and 8. Look there with me. He says, For land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for those whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to be being cursed, and its end is to be burned. So here in verses 7 through 8, we see first the blessing for those who are found in the promise. And then in verse 8, the cursing, thorns and thistles. Jesus used this type of thorn and thistle covenant language in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 8, verse 14. When he describes false professing believers for whom the seed of the word fell among thorns, they believe for a while and in time of testing, they fall away. And so here the writer of Hebrews, this pastor in verse 6 is telling us that many have fallen away. Many of these false professing believers appeared, verses 4 and 5, to believe for a while, and likewise, when time of testing came, they fall away. These Christians were evidencing what seemed like spiritual fruit. It came for a while, they tasted the goodness of God, there was enlightenment. In every way, we would probably all say, 
there's a Christian. But the evidences were shallow. They were false. And at best, they were likely experience-based. In fact, it's one of the first times that the writer of Hebrews takes salvation towards a subjective type of experience more than an objective source. So just when these readers are left with a pounding fear in their hearts through this pastor, he turns towards wise care in this message of comfort in verse 9. Let us read there. And though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. There he calls them beloved. And he speaks to them and says that he is assured of better things. He encourages these true believers with evidences of their faith that continuously show forth in bearing fruit and enduring in love. This love is being shown for other Christians in the church. Let's read in verse 10. For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints as you still do. So love is an expression of the fruit or the evidence of a true and lively faith. And and then in verse 11, he makes his desire clear to us, the reader. Read, Read there with me. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness, to have the full assurance of hope until the end. Now, he desires that we would have a full assurance, not a partial, but a full assurance of hope. And it's a hope that he says will go to the end. He wants confidence for these believers, every one of them. Notice that he says that. The desire is for everyone. We desire each one of you. It's true, it's true for us, Sovereign Grace elders and pastors. We, we desire that. When, when you come in here Sunday morning, we are, we are realizing that there are some, maybe few, but some who have, the seed has fallen amongst the thorns and the thistles. And, and, and we are concerned for you. And it is our heart's desire that you would come to know God in a more full assurance of your faith. So the question then is, how do we receive that full assurance? Where, where does this pastor lead us in, in the book of Hebrews to find our hope? Well, his goal then is to encourage the faint-hearted and to build up the weak. And in some ways, that's really all of us at some given point in time, isn't it? where we find ourselves weak in the faith, where we really need others in the body to love and serve us well. Well, the writer wants to encourage us in three ways. And so in the remaining section, verses 13 through 20, I want us to look at these three ways of which he wants to encourage us. That he wants to show us first, God's unchangeable purpose. God's unchangeable purpose. And then he wants to ground us in certain confidence. And then lastly, he wants to secure our hearts with an immovable anchor of hope. I just have to do this, but 
three ways, just to kind of get Pastor Jason's three ways in there, you know. The three things, unchangeable purpose, ground us in certain confidence, and then secure our hearts with a movable anchor of hope. Let's read in verse 13. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself. The writer wants us to stop and consider the nature from whom the promise came from. He says, no one greater by whom to swear that God made this promise by himself. But think about the nature of the one giving the promise. God, God exists eternally. He is unchanging in both his substance and his being. That means that in truth he is unwavering. He's perfect in knowledge. He has no randomness. He has no haphazardness. There is no uncertainty, no uh, comparison to him. He's not contingent upon anything outside of himself like we are. We as human beings have a really difficult time even understanding this kind of promise. And, And you know why that is, right? Because we have none of these qualities. We have none of these things. We are finite as creatures. Everything in our life comes to an end and doesn't last, right? You know that with Christmas. The, oh, the joy, the songs, you know, Burl Ives and Sinatra and all that good stuff. And after about three months of it, because they play it since Halloween, you're done. You're tired of the music. The presents, you know, you spent too much money. Now you're depressed because your credit card was run up. You, you, you're, you've eaten too much food and you've just realized how gluttonous we all really are as Americans, right? But everything in our life really comes to an end. It's not, it's not lasting. It's finite. But God is everlasting and he's eternal. We often change and we are fickle, but he is he, he does not change. And so, because we're inconsistent, when we make promises, and then we often really don't keep them, isn't that right? I mean, some of you, as you're kind of moving away from the last 2015 and forward to the 2016, you're making these resolutions, some of you. For the rest of us, we just got tired of it a long time ago. Because after about two weeks, you stop going to the gym. After about three weeks, you start eating, you know, the the good stuff of the land, I guess. And we start realizing that, again, promises are broken, even, even in our own hearts. There's no use, guys, in devoting our lives to a God who's capricious, There's no use in devoting our lives or even being here this morning and wasting an even hour hour of our time if we serve a God that doesn't do what he says he's going to do. So the promise that Abraham is told by God, this, this unchangeable promise, 
He is told in the next verse, verse 14, he says, surely I will bless you and multiply you. God made a promise to Abraham that his seed would fill the earth. And and so we're led into this, this next promise by seeing that God keeps this enduring faithfulness to to. Uh, Abraham and to his offspring. The author in Hebrews six twelve, the pastor writes here. Back, look at verse twelve with me. That we may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who, through faith and patience, inherit the promise. So, when we're asking ourselves the question, how does God seek to keep us enduring in faithfulness? In his promise, we see right here the author tells us, don't be sluggish and be imitators. And what does he mean by being sluggish? Well, the word sluggish is found one other time back in chapter 5, verse 11. And it's the word dole. And there the pastor writes in 5.11, about this, we have much to say. And it is, a hard, it is hard to explain since you have become dole of hearing. Apparently, these believers were really still infants. They weren't maturing. They they needed milk, the pastor says. Uh, He couldn't even move them on to meatier things. And he's saying, I have to revisit this. I have to teach you over and over. I feel like I have to keep going back to the basics. Because you can't handle any more than that. But the important thing he's saying is that they're dull of their hearing. They're not hearing the word of God. And this is important to our faith endurance. The word of God is critical. It is the means of grace by which God feeds our soul. When you come here on a Sunday morning, you hear the word preached. It's more than just the words of some other book being read. These were fashioned in such a way to meet the deepest needs of our souls. And there is no other word. There is no other book that does like it. It has particular revelation, special revelation, that really reveals something to us more than just the moral will of God. It reveals to us the saving will of God. And it's the only place that we can find it. And so he tells us, don't be sluggish. So we're image bearers. And as Abraham believed in faith, his children would spread in such a way that they would make disciples of faith. This is our high call. We participate in the great promises of Abraham in keeping to God's word. This is why in our church, we participate in this great promise by sending people to other nations to take the word of God to them. Think about this. In, the, in this next year, we're going to have seven people leaving Sovereign Grace to be missionaries. Uh, they're going to go reach people who have never had the Word of God, who've never heard about Christ, who've never been given a hope, who lie in darkness, who lie in that shadow, the one cast upon man in Genesis, and they still are there and we come into a comfortable auditorium and we have nice warm comfy seats 
where we can hear the word of God preached. And we take it for, great, we take it for granted, don't we? We really do. When there are those who haven't heard. But we have people in this church, and they're giving up jobs, lucrative jobs, great jobs, jobs that they went to school for, got their degrees in, worked hard to get, and they've walked away from them. They're giving up their family. Grandparents are having to say goodbye to their grandchildren. They're, they're giving up their American comforts, and they're, and they're going to, from their church family. They're giving up their church family to go see a church family of faith followers come into being. In Hebrews 11.8, the, the pastor writes this. He says of Abraham, By faith Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. So the only way that we continue to endure and accomplish this great work that was given to Abraham is that we avoid being sluggish. That we avoid the dullness of hearing. Hey, make it your resolution to be under the word and under the preaching ministry every Sunday this next year. Make it your goal not to miss. Because think of it as food. You, you don't miss a meal very easily, do you? But boy, we'll, we'll, we'll miss Sunday for all kinds of reasons. Romans ten seventeen. Again, the pastor encourages us. He says this, so faith comes by hearing and, or from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. So faithfulness and confidence, faithfulness and confidence in the Christian walk, it, it doesn't just come through one sermon, but through a lifetime of sermons ongoingly that keep us tethered to God's word. The other way that we keep enduring faithfully, he, the writer says in, in verse 12, is to be imitators. Be imitators. And we're quick to think of the imitation of their actions, their behaviors. But here we're told of Abraham and the other patriarchs that we're to be imitators of their faith. Of such men like that who depended not upon their own good works. To save them, but trusted in God and what He said in His promises. The writer is really saying that we imitate, look what he says in verse 12. He says, imitating of those who through faith, through faith, receive of the promises and, and patience, patience inherit the promises. So, first of all, let's not lean upon our own works, our own goodness. Because you and I know that just like our promises and everything else, we will fall short and we won't make it to the end if that's what we rely upon. And if we focus upon ourselves more than we focus upon God, then we're sure to fail because it is God who sustains. It is God who feeds his sheep. It is him who gives uh, them faith through the hearing of his word. And in the verse 12, the writer mentions that it's through faith and, and patience which follows. It, if you recall Abraham, you remember with me, Abraham didn't have a virtuous kind of faith, one that you could really observe from the outside of his life. He often failed in his belief. 
you remember when God came and told him that he would bear this, the promised seed and he would bear that through Sarah. But what did Abraham do? He immediately contrived a way that he could manufacture the promise through Hagar, his concubine. So Abraham, on the outside, if we read these men of the Old Testament and really read into their lives, we see that they're, they're fickle just like us. They fall apart quickly. So is that the faith that we're to imitate in regard to their actions? Well, it's the faith in God, in the one in whom they have their, their affection. It's the object, not, not the subject. So Abraham, it says, verse 15, patiently waited and obtained the promise. Uh, as being the seed of Abraham, those who believe and in faith trust in the work of God, we not only receive an unchangeable promise, but by faith we patiently rely upon certain confidence as believers. And now the certain confidence, the certain confidence, this unchangeable oath. Let's read in verses 16 through 18. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. So that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we have fled, we who have fled for refuge, we might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope that is set before us. So in this oath, which is extended from God's promise, as if the promise isn't enough and God could have ended there, but he gives more than that. He gives, he gives this oath, and this agreement, this contract. And in that oath, God bases it upon his own covenant-keeping character. It's upon his own character that the promise and the oath are now what? Two unchangeable things. And they are secured for us in this. How are they secured for us? In this way. It is impossible for God to lie. It's impossible for God to lie. Now, what does that mean for us? Well, if God should lie, he would cease to exist as God. And so the oath is confirmed within himself. He doesn't shake the hand of the men for whom he gives his promise. Would you choose, just think about it, would you choose to make a promise with someone or sign a contract or take up an agreement with an unreliable lying thief or someone who doesn't often keep their word? If you went to a bank and you knew that the bank that year would foreclose and go bankrupt itself, would you take out a loan? If you went to a car lot and you bought a car, but you knew that car dealership would go out of business and they would no longer be even, even able to fix your car, would you, would you buy that car? Of course you wouldn't. And so if that's true, then, then why would God, the everlasting God, the, the one who's perfect in holiness, he's perfect in righteousness and truth, why would he make an eternal covenant, an unbreakable, a saving agreement that involved you and me. Think about it. He wouldn't put weak sinners on the other side of the handshake. 
And later in Hebrews chapter 8 and in Hebrews chapter 10, the writer describes that to us. That the law wasn't the weak part under Moses in making contract with God's people. It was the people who were weak. And so there needed to be a more durable covenant, a more lasting, a more reliable covenant of which God would keep promise upon. And that is the covenant given to Abraham. And we were seeing back in Galatians that that Paul was asking the question, why, Christians, are you going back to Moses when you are the seed of Abraham? There's a better, more sure, a more anchored promise that you can have. And so God swore by himself. And that phrase is loaded with biblical truth found in the Old Testament. You see, this pastor really knows his Bible. And he's taking us back into these Old Testament redemptive stories. They're found in first in the promise, Genesis 12. You remember God gave his promise to Abraham. And that was a promise that he would save a people from every tribe, tongue, and nation, and he would bring them them into this new land of fruitfulness, and they would be under his rule and blessing. But there in Genesis 15, the following chapter, God now cuts the covenant with Abraham. And what's unique about this ceremony, this covenant-cutting ceremony that God makes with Abraham is, is that in that story, Abraham is put to sleep. And it's a little bit reminiscent of when we see that God creates Eve out of Adam. And what did he do with Adam? He put him to sleep. And out of his side, he takes and he makes his wife the one who he would be bound to in covenant marriage with. And, and yet now God is, 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 is performing a bit of a marriage vow. But he puts Abraham to sleep and he walks through the pieces alone, by himself, were shown. So God keeps promise to his people with Abraham. Those that were in exile later on in Egypt, when they're bound in slavery, and there in Genesis 15, he casts forward this promise that he will deliver God's people after 400 years of slavery. Israel wasn't even born yet. Hundreds of years were still to come before this would all happen. But it was an enduring oath. And in Exodus 2, when Israel cried out in their suffering and in their bondage and their pain, God heard their cry, and, he, and it says there in Exodus 2, and he remembered the covenant that he had made with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. In Genesis 17, God seals this covenant with circumcision with Abraham. He gives this sign for his seed. And there again he reiterates to Abraham that this covenant he's making, this promise, is everlasting. It's an enduring oath. It will not come to an end. And then, of course, where we find our text, our pastor quoting today, he quotes from Genesis 22. And in Genesis 22, it's the climax of these covenant-making promises that God gives In Genesis 22, you remember, Abraham in faith believed God as he takes Isaac, his only son, up a hill to sacrifice him. And what to sacrifice him as a burnt offering. It's it's Isaac as he's walking with his father that he asks the question, Father, where is the lamb for the burnt offering? 
He sees the wood. He sees, he sees his father. They've likely done this in the past, but now he's walking up saying, where's the lamb? And Abraham replies, God will provide himself the lamb for a burnt offering. This beautiful, redemptive picture given to us of, of the way that God makes covenant with his people. An everlasting covenant through the sacrifice of his only son. And there in Genesis 22, if you want to turn there real quick, we're going to read the verses that we saw the pastor pick up in Hebrews 6 with. Hebrew, or Genesis 22, 16 and 17, it says, By myself I have sworn, sorry, 22, 16, or hopefully you're there with me. I kind of jumped a little too quick at it. You guys all there? Okay. He said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son. I will surely bless you. I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand is on the seashore and your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. God bases his promises upon his own swearing in ceremony. That which was done in Genesis 15 is now given to us in full picture in Genesis 22. And God then restates that promise over and over throughout the whole of the Old Testament. God's unchangeable promise, it gives us these oaths of God. They're contained within the promise. And within the oaths, we have certain confidence. And then our faith is an immovably, an immovable anchor. It's an immovable anchor. It's, it's not found in me. It's not found in you. It's anchored in God. And there we now look at the last point. The encouragement of this pastor is that our faith might be that immovable anchor. Verse 19 and 20, back in Hebrews 6. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain, where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. This, this anchor, this, this gospel, it enters into the inner sanctuary. It goes behind the curtain. The curtain of the temple that once held men back, put them on the outside. They were sinful, could not come into God's presence. But now the temple curtain has been torn, and Christ our high priest has gone in before us. He's gone all the way into the sanctuary, all the way into the Holy of Holies. And we are told now that this is an immovable anchor. It's unbreakable. It's certain. It, it's, it's like an anchor the size of the ocean itself. Anchors are important. Anchors matter. If you're out on a ship and you hit a storm, an anchor matters, doesn't it? And it would be kind of foolish if you were, you know, have, and you had a rope 
and, and you're going you're gonna to throw an acre out in the middle of a storm, it would be rather foolish to tie that acre to a pillow and throw it out to sea. That, well, that would be stupid. Yeah. <laughs> You'd be like Jonah. You'd be quickly thrown overboard, wouldn't you? Or if you, if you tied it to a brick and you threw the brick out, it might go and it might sink, but it wouldn't hold you in a storm. So life, our lives need a strong anchor. And if you really think about it, what's going to, what's going to hold you when your storm comes? What's going to hold you when, when you lose your job or if you lose your job? Or you've lost your job. What's holding you? What's going to hold you when your, your sin is shown to you? In graciousness, the Lord allows it to, to be there, to be shown. What anchor is going to keep you? What anchor is going to keep you um, if your child should die? It's, it's what we dread. What is going to hold you when your storm comes? Well, the pastor wants us to have a sure anchor, a very, very large anchor, one that we can fully, fully trust within. There is only one anchor that can hold us, and verse 20 tells us who the anchor is. The anchor is Jesus. Jesus, who has gone as a forerunner. He's gone there on your behalf. And what did it take to get there? We were singing it earlier. He went through suffering. He went through death to enter into the Holy of Holies. He he paved that way with blood. He he opened the way for you so that you and I can be reconciled with the Holy God, brought back. Christ stands ministering on behalf of, of God's people. At this very moment, he stands ministering on behalf of those who believe for their sin. It's an endurable, it's an everlasting ministry, this priest. He assures us that those who flee to him, flee to Christ, this anchor for hope, they'll never be disappointed. They will be spiritual descendants and descendants of Abraham. And what does that mean for us? Well, we're Gentiles. And so the writer is encouraging that whether you're Jew or Gentile, this promise, this anchor is good enough. It brings you in. And if you and I will place our trust fully in Christ, if this morning we will take upon us these promises, this hope in Christ, we're given this sure blessing, verse 14. He, he says, I will surely bless you. And that won't, that won't go away. The spiritual nature of that blessing is held true to us. It's held in front of us. And all we need to do is place our faith and full trust in what God has already done. It, it's not so much found in our behaving, but in our believing. It's in our resting, Hebrews 4 says, their belief was it was in resting, and we have this great encouragement. And so today, I have you consider that: where is your hope? What do you trust in when you find life difficult? When things get hard, do you put your trust in a weak anchor, your spouse, 
your kids, the, the guy up, up here preaching behind the word? Or do, or do you put your trust in God's word? And, and, and it's our prayer as Sovereign Grace pastors that this year would be a year, that every year would be a year, that the entirety of your life would, would end well. And you could go all the way. And you can know that. You, you don't have to guess about that because you're guessing upon your strength. You're looking at the durability of God and the covenant that he keeps with us. So the faith that God keeps his people in is forever. Forever and ever. Let us pray. Father, we are forever thankful for the curse that Christ, your Son, bore on our behalf. That he provides the only anchor for the soul. That this anchor is permanently fixed in the inner sanctuary. That he made a way behind the curtain into your presence that where we would have been kept from having hope of ever knowing you outside of this permanent way that he had paved. But Christ, Christ your son, he has gone through, he has suffered sin's curse. He took death on our behalf so that then we might enjoy everlasting grace. And it is, it is because of Christ that a way was made for sinful man that we might be reconciled back to our creator, become your people once again, and live forever under an eternal rule and blessing in Christ. Oh Lord, turn our hearts to trust in Jesus today and turn our lives to live upon the hope of knowing him completely. Help us look to him, fix our eyes upon him, the author and the perfecter of our faith. And it's in your son's name that we pray and trust in Jesus' name, amen.